Um, because of what I do, uh, I have to do uh, like a disclosure at the start of this. So, number one, nobody's paying me to be here. I don't represent Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson. You can't hear? Okay, is that better? Hold it closer? Okay, right. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I have worked as a consultant emergency physician for 20 years. Uh, I, I am a member of the Royal College of Physicians and a fellow of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, but I don't represent any of these bodies speaking today. I'm speaking today personally, um, and I'm speaking uh, from a Christian perspective. So the topic that I've been given uh, is actually quite broad-ranging. I hope you can... I'm going to try and keep going uh, quite fast because it is, it, is, it is quite pervasive. But we're going to look at it um, from three perspectives. Um, I feel like I'm going from theologian to historian to doctor, um, and it's weird to do it all in the same talk, but hopefully it, it, it'll work together. Um, the first bit we're going to look at is... How then should we live? You may recognize uh, Francis Schaeffer's title from that, but it's about choosing life in a world of right and wrong. We'll move on to reckoning with past wrongs, and we'll move on to medical ethics and what their foundations are. Um, and then uh, we'll move into putting this into application and practice. Uh, the quote there is from Primo Levi. If you didn't recognize it, it happened. Therefore, it can happen again. We're going to look at red flags for the church in, in Christian ethics. So starting uh, right at the start then with how then shall we live? What is our biblical basis for ethics? We need to know what we're talking about. We're talking about ethics uh, and morals. Ethics tends to be about a group of people. Morals tends to be more individual and personal. So there's the Oxford uh, uh, Dictionary definitions of ethics, rules of conduct in a particular structure or group recognized by an external source, whereas morals is more about principles and habits related to right and wrong conduct based on an individual's own compass of right or wrong. So we're going to be looking at, from a Christian perspective, what the foundations in the scriptures are um, of ethics and morals. So there are... Five things that we need to look at uh, in the Old Testament that, 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 that move us in that direction. The first is the implications of man as God's image bearer. We move on to the implications of moral knowledge, uh, the implications of the two greatest commandments, and then the ten words or the ten commandments themselves, both uh, from an Old Testament perspective and from a Sermon on the Mount perspective. And finally, into that lovely Micah mandate in Micah 6 and 8. So, moving quickly into uh, the first, the implications of man as God's image bearer. It's very clear from Genesis 1, 26 and 27 that humans are unique in God's creation in that they bear his image. And when we ask that, what does it actually mean to bear God's image and what implications does that actually have? So, what is God? What is man? Who is God? Who is man? Uh, God is one nature. God is one. Um, he's infinite and he's perfect. The reflection of that in man, one nature, but finite and fallible. Who is God? Well, we know God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is three persons with one nature, with a mind and a will. Likewise with us, we, he has conferred that personality on us, that personhood, so we too have a mind and a will. What are the implications of man as image bearer then? Um, first of all, the worth of human beings. 
Uh, it is totally different than any other aspect of creation. That dignity that has been conferred upon us by being uh, uh, made in God's image. There's a freedom that comes with it, a liberty that comes where we can be creative. Not in the sense that God was creative, creating from ex nihilo or from nothing. Uh, but we can use what God has given us. And I don't believe any other aspect of creation can do that. Uh, we are rational beings. We can think. We can make choices. We're volitional. We can do things. And we can make a choice between right and wrong. I'm going to look a little bit further about what the relations, relational aspects are of being made in God's image uh, in terms of relating to God and relating to our neighbor. And finally, you have to put in their potential. Behold what manner of love the Father has for us, that we should be called sons of God. So a complete and utter uniqueness that comes uh, from being human, and it's the foundation of our, our, of our whole moral code. If you want to know what God's relational character is like, you have to look um, first at where he reveals himself to us in scripture. The most open bit where God revealed himself is where he revealed himself to Moses in the cleft of the rock. Moses wanted to see God's face. God, of course, doesn't have a face in the sense that God is spirit um, and God's glory would have completely overwhelmed Mo uh, Moses. So he was allowed to hide in the cleft of the rock and be covered by God's hand as God revealed himself. This is a bit multicolored. Um, the reason for that is uh, the Hebrews look at this as the 13 aspects of God's mercy or the 13 bits of his character in terms of mercy. So I have alternately labeled those characters uh, um, red and blue. Um, I, so the Lord, Yahweh, I am. The Lord, again, he doesn't change. God, our God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness, truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. So comparing the last line there, God is just. Our sin will unfortunately have effects for three or four generations God's love will go on for thousands so by contrast we need to know so you noticed I've underlined two words there goodness and mercy they come from a Hebrew root which is called hesed uh, there are uh, about 70 different translations of that word in the Old Testament it's mentioned about 250 times it's the core bit of God's character. In the Coverdale translation, they invented the English word loving kindness uh, to explain what it was. And I say there are so many words for it, but unfailing love. That is what God is in terms of his relational character and what he expects of us as image bearers. Michael Card has come up with a definition of this, which I think is great. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. And if you look at the Hebrew roots, it's always linked to another word. Or in most cases, it's linked to another word. So it's not hated in its own. It's, it's unfailing love and truth, or unfailing love and mercy, covenant, justice, faithfulness, goodness, favor, and righteousness. So keep, keep that word in mind 
in terms of us being image bearers. The implications of moral knowledge there, in the garden, we were given a choice. One instruction. Trust me and obey what I've said. That's what God said. No big set of rules, no big set of do's and don'ts, no ten commandments. One instruction, trust and obey. Don't eat off the tree. What's the big deal about the tree? If you do it, trust me, you will die. Okay, that was, that was the instruction that was given and the consequence that was known. What was so bad about the tree? People stop and they say, this is the tree of knowledge. It's not the tree of knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing. This is the tree of moral knowledge. This is the tree of differentiating between good and evil. Man didn't have the capacity to deal with that knowledge. And God said, leave it up to me. Eat any tree you want. Do what you wish. One instruction. Of course, we failed in it. If we hadn't, we might have been rewarded with that higher freedom. As it happened, we failed, and that higher freedom had to be bought at a great cost. The disappearance of moral knowledge I borrowed from Dallas Willard's book. Uh, Dallas Willard, uh, it was finished after he died, actually, a philosopher and Christian. Um, And he looked at what has happened in society today where all of our big universities and colleges were based on a theological college and then other forms of knowledge came to be known. Nowadays, our universities and colleges are predominantly secular in their outlook. They've moved the theological colleges off campus. uh, And he said, as a result of that, we have had in society a disappearance of that moral knowledge, a disappearance of the knowledge and the influence of between right and wrong. The two greatest commandments, to love God with all your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus, you know, his, his recall of scripture is just, was just amazing. When, he, when they tried to trick him, he was just able to quote Deuteronomy and Leviticus just like that. And when they tried to trick him into what the greatest commandments were. And so you can find them in, in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and Leviticus 19, 18. And then you look at when Jesus was asked, um, both in Matthew 22 and Luke 10, uh, where you can see his response to this. So what's, the, what's the, the first command in the Bible? It's the Shema. It says, listen. Listen. You have a duty to God. You've got to love your creator. And that's your primary motivation for everything. It's the primary motivation of your morals, if you're a Christian. How? Well, Jesus told the parable to explain how. He told the parable that we all know as the prodigal son, but it's probably better known as the prodigal father because there was an extravagant wastage on a wayward son and and, and an older brother in terms of this. And it's probably one of the biggest uh, examples of God's true character, his hatred, his unfailing love. So if we want to know how to love God, well, it's because he first loved us. So that's how we can love God, even when we find it difficult. On top of that, we have a duty to our neighbor, which flows from our love from God. If you, if you can't get the first commandment right, there's not a chance of getting the second commandment right. And Jesus told that in terms of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? It's the person you meet who has need. And to be honest, the Bible tells us our love is not real. 
Our love for God is not real if we can't love our neighbor. So there's the two greatest commandments, our duties to God and our duty to our neighbor. So when we go into the Ten Commandments, it becomes really clear. The first four correlate with the first, our duty to God. The second six with our duty to our neighbor. And you can work your way through them there. I've tried uh, in, on the left side to explain the letter of the law. That's the Ten Commandments as revealed to Moses in Exodus. Um, on the right side, I've tried to put a word, because these were known as the Ten Words, I've tried to put a word that uh, explains how Jesus interpreted them uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. We have an allegiance to God, a worship to God. We have to exalt his name. And we have to rely on him. We have to rest sometimes. Then there's the, uh, uh, our duties to our neighbor. Um, we have to honor our parents. There's this thing about worth, again, which we'll come back to when we get to go into medical ethics and the worth of a, worth of a human being. Uh, we have, have to have this exclusive commitment in marriage. We have to have fidelity. Um, nothing about stealing. It's about generosity. It's the other extreme. Um, there's, there's nothing about running somebody down. It's about being transparent in what, what it is that we, uh, what we're saying about people uh, in a nice way. And I always struggled with the last one. Don't covet. It's kind of the peak of the commandments. Why is it there and why is it at number 10? Because it, it tells you something about what's going on on the inside, not on the outside, which, is, is, which matters so much more in terms of our morals and our ethics. If we appear good on the outside but are rotten on the inside, we're lost. So I'm going to call that one integrity. So there's our ten words or our, our ten commandments as Jesus opened them up and explained them in the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to look at the sixth one there. I want to look at the one, do not murder. Uh, because it's something about the worth of a human being uh, made in the image of God. If you look at the roots of this, there's always hurt. Hurt's a negative emotion, and it usually results in anger. Anger in itself isn't a sin, but we were told, be angry and sin not. Um, so anger, when it's indulged, brings you to contempt. And what is contempt? Contempt is for another image bearer, and it says that the other person is worthless. It's not too far down the line from assessing someone as being worthless uh, to saying, well, you've injured me, therefore I'm going to injure you, then some, okay, because you did it first, okay? And it's not too far from there when contempt is embraced and you decide that another human being made in God's image is not worthy to live. So the New Testament really opens up that commandment and shows us the roots of murder and it wasn't long after the Garden of Eden when the first murder occurred. I like Dallas Willard's analysis of this. It's about looking at the inside rather than the out. And his quotation is, the deep question always concerns who you are, not what you did or can do. So we're, we're told if your hand offends, cut it off. If your eye offends, pluck it out. He said, if you dismember your body to the point where you could never murder, or even hatefully look at another, never commit adultery or even look in lust. Your heart could still be full of anger, contempt, and obsessive desire for what is wrong, no matter how, may, how thoroughly stifles or suppressed it may be. So it's on the inside. It's about that last commandment. It's about integrity. It's about what's on the inside, marrying it up with how you are 
on the outside. And when that breaks down, you can see what happens just from hurt and anger. I'm going to finish um, with the, the biblical side by saying, what does God require of us? Um, it's, 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 it's written in Micah 6 and 8. And we're, we're required to do three things. So the first one is about justice. We have to do justly. We have to treat people as equals. We have to recognize them as uh, image bearers. We've got to love mercy. Again, mercy is such a weak word. We have to love hasted is the word. Uh, and we have to walk humbly with God. So if you want one instruction in the garden, two greatest commandments, ten words, a mandate to do three things, you have got your biblical essence of your moral structure and your ethics. So, okay, somebody might be listening and saying, I'm not a Christian. Where does that leave us? Well, it really depends what you believe. Um, when, you, when you move away from a belief in God to atheism, you eventually end up with some form of reductionism, which says that human beings are just particles of matter, physics, on which are built chemicals bonded together in organic chemistry. And then they're joined together to make the molecules of life, which is organic chemistry. And then you make a few cells and organs, and you, you get a body that's biology. And really, all these feelings that you have of love and appreciation of music and a, and a nice landscape are just chemical reactions in your brain. And when you reduce a human, human being to that, then you start to get ideologies coming in. And over the last century, we had these two horrendous ideologies that were based on survival of the fittest or an application of Darwin's theory into, into social life, so social Darwinism. And I'll come back to the lives unworthy to be lived. Um, and you've got cultural Marxism, uh, where we use the phrase, for the greater good. How many people have heard that in the last two years? Um, and that essentially means that the end justifies the means. Some people have gone further to say that the means justifies the end. But once you start down the line of the, these ideologies and you take away man as being made in the image of God, you, there, there's no end to where you can end up. So bear that in mind. So, part two. Reckoning with past wrongs. How do we go from biblical ethics into medical ethics in terms of uh, what are the guidelines uh, and regulations that we should do in terms of medical practice? Um, uh, and I really want to take us back in history to reckoning with, with past wrongs. Um, in 1987, uh, Nigel Cameron came to uh, speak to us on ethics as, as a group of, um, a mixture of Christians and non-Christians. And one of the questions that was asked lots of times was, how in the context of people being killed, did Christians and even non-Christians consent to it? So he pointed uh, us to uh, a book. Um, and before I just show you that book, I just want to tell you that way, way before all of this, from, even from the Greek philosophers, we always had an overriding precautionary principle when we treated people in medicine, and that was first, do no harm. So that's in there. It's, it is fully, fully uh, uh, compared with, with our Christian perspective 
but it didn't come from a Christian perspective. It came from uh, Greek philosophers. But they realized that the, the, the first thing you should do is nothing. And if you're going to do something, make sure you don't harm someone by what you do. Uh, so he, he, uh, well, he, he pointed us to this book. And, and to, to understand the book and to understand a lot of this, you've got to understand what public health measures are. So I've drawn this little diagram to explain that we have scientists that are out there that come up with new ideas and things that we could potentially do, and some of them could potentially cause harm, other ones could potentially cause good. So science is a discipline, it uses an empiric method, it tries things and it sees if it's reproducible, and it comes up with results, and then it, that passes over to medics who really are practicing an art as opposed to a science, and you have to say, well, what evidence have you given me for this? Um, is it valid? Is there bias in it? Is, is there undue influence in this? If I give this to my patient, will I do them harm or will I do them good? What evidence is there there? And then that feeds into government who come up with policies. So there are regulatory bodies in medicine and in science. They come up with policies for that. And then there's policies that go out into practice in public health. Of course, on top of all of that, there's lots of people who are influencers. I think supranational bodies, um, people with big egos uh, that, that run the world, have big influence on national governments. Um, uh, of course, the economics of how the country's working will affect how your public health can actually work. And then there's the ideologies. So do you want social Darwinism and cultural Marxism to be... Uh, directing how medicine is practiced in this country? Um, or what influence does the church have on the government and on medicine and science that comes in? And I would say perhaps in the last year or two, you could probably turn that arrow around and say that actually the church had no influence. It was the government that had the influence upon the church. Um, I put a big red box there called state of emergency because things change when you declare a state of emergency. When Hitler declared the Reichstag fire, it meant that he could be totalitarian, one-party state. You could do whatever you want. So to do that, all you have to have is a state of emergency. And you have to introduce that for a couple of weeks until you get people comfortable. Um, and for us, in the last two years, as we're still in this state of emergency, uh, you have to be wary about what happens. Now, state of emergency is where we say, look, um, something awful is happening which is exceeding what we can manage. How are we going to manage it? And I liken that to how we manage a major incident. So day to day, we have people come to the hospital with emergencies, and we see them. We don't necessarily see them in the order that they come. Uh, and some people might say you don't necessarily see people at all, but that's another, um, uh, another issue. Um, uh, but we, we, we try and pick out the people who have the greatest priority. So if you're breathing your last we will leave the person with the sore ankle and try and help you to live. That's the principle of triage and, uh, and, and, and focusing your resources on where they're going to matter most. Things change in a state of emergency. If you're on a battlefield and there's hundreds of people who are injured, there's going to be people who are near death and there's going to be people who are recoverable but not near death. If you go and spend your time with the person that's near death and they die, and you let the people that are recoverable die, then you have really done a disservice. So in a major incident, we actually change our priorities. If you're breathing your last, you're allowed to breathe your last. 
This becomes really an ethical problem when you start to take it beyond half an hour of a major incident or two days of a major incident. You start to apply that to populations. And you start to say, well, we're going to do this for two years. Well, what priorities did you change? And if you start to say, well, do you know what? The old don't matter. Uh, they're going to die anyway, so we'll, we'll, we'll sacrifice them. Uh, that's, that's a big ethical issue that has to be considered. So in all of this, you have to look at the state of emergency. The book that I'm referring to that we were directed to was by a geneticist from Germany called uh, Benno Müller-Hill. It was written in German in 1984. Uh, we uh, got the English translation in 1987. And this is where we were directed to try and get our heads around why the ordinary people stood by and let this happen. More importantly, why did the church stand by and let this happen? Um, so I'm going to keep coming back to this lives unworthy to be lived because it's the antithesis of any human being made in God's image. So we're going to look back to a time when science, medicine and government went badly wrong and what mechanisms were put in place to put it right. This is the foundations of our medical ethics. So I'm going to very, very quickly race through a lot of slides that are going to give you some history. In 1900, okay, so Hitler was painting in Germany, minding his own business. Um, uh, everybody got very excited about the monk Mendel who discovered the basics of genetics. He didn't know what a gene was. He didn't know what a cell was. He just worked out that you could cross-pollinate plants and you could have dominant traits and, and not-so-dominant traits, recessive traits. Um, and he worked out uh, a mode of inheritance. About the turn of the century, 1900, this was looked at again and people said, oh, hold on a minute. All the human traits that you have are primarily inherited um, and the whole thing of natural selection, that social Darwinism came up again. People decided that they had a duty to prevent the procreation of inferior races and individuals. So this is completely incompatible with the Christian ethic pattern that we've just looked at from scripture. Uh, but way, way before anything happened in Germany, this was the prevailing ideology, and not just Germany, around the world as well. In 1905, um, it didn't take too long for a psychiatrist to come up with a society for race hygiene. Okay, uh, 1920, uh, a lawyer and a psychiatrist came up with a book whose title just chills me. Uh, the Sanctioning of the Destruction of Lives Unworthy to be Lived. There's no war going on here. There's no Hitler. This is, this is the ideology that prevailed when you take your eye off the fact that every human being is made in the image of God. 1923, uh, Fisher and Lenz, who both survived through the war and got away without any issues at all, uh, wrote a book, The Principles of Human Heredity and Race Hygiene. And it was that book that a now imprisoned young Adolf read and incorporated into my struggle. So the ideology was there. The public were accepting it. The professionals were doing it. The medics were endorsing it. Hitler said, why not? 1927, that's you'd say KWG, that's the Kaiser William Institute in Berlin, was formed for the advancements of sciences. So this is the Institute of Anthropology, which would be an old day genetics. Um, 
uh, human hereditary, and this guy Fisher, who had these eugenics ideas, was put in as director. In 1929, this is out of Germany, in Rome, we had an international congress of eugenics. What's eugenics? This is about we only want people that are healthy and of the right race, uh, people that are disabled um, or not contributing to society, as we suspect it is, really should not be allowed to exist. And what they thought is, look, if we got rid of all those people, then their genes wouldn't spread and we wouldn't have any more of them ever again. Now, you know, from what we know in genetics, that was just complete and utter nonsense, uh, but it's what came in the ideology. And, you know, you've heard this in the last two years, maximum speed is necessary, the danger is enormous. The danger <laughs> of a disabled person. Nineteen thirty-two, Prussian State Health Council recommended a law on sterilization. Eugenics in the service of public welfare. Nineteen thirty-three, Hitler's now Chancellor of the Reich, so we have a law for the prevention of progeny with hereditary defects. Who doesn't know somebody on that list? Another psychiatrist, you've heard of vaccine passports. They're not new. Our goal must be to establish a certificate of hereditary biology for every citizen and every inhabitant. Those who do not suffer from hereditary disease within the meaning of the law are not necessarily hereditarily healthy and fit to breed. 1935, International Congress of Population Problems. You've heard that. Again, by a psychiatrist, it's desirable to extend prevention of reproduction to relatives of schizophrenics who stand out because of minor anomalies. In other words, your face doesn't fit and you have a relative who's a schizophrenic, so we need to deal with you too. And above all, to define each of them as being undesirable from the eugenic point of view at the beginning of the reproductive age. There was compulsory sterilization introduced for valueless lives. 1937, if you were a German child of colour, you were involuntarily sterilised. 1938, investigation into a hospital in Herborn showed that they were doing euthanasia by starvation. They just let the, the uh, psychiatric patients die. Look at what the report said. As long as there is no law for the destruction of lives unworthy to be lived. So there's still lives unworthy to be lived but until we get a law against it, we have to feed them. You see how the 1900 ideology started to work itself out. 1938, we're still pre-war here. Committee for Public Care and Welfare considered it wasn't passed. It wanted to extend this to asocial individuals. Asocial individuals were people that didn't fit with the state pattern of who you should be. So defined people could have two doctors and a policeman decide that they were in that category and they could be sterilized, sent to internment, or both. Thankfully, one of the things that wasn't passed. 1939, doctors, 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 specially designated physicians, patients judged incurable could be granted mercy killing. Doctors were paid to fill out a questionnaire. If you filled out that questionnaire that said you were in that category, 75,000 of them were sentenced to death for mental illness. 
Out of 283,000 in institutions, 75,000 of them at the stroke of a pen were sentenced to death. There was a right commission for the registration of severe disorder of childhood that was run by children's doctors, paediatricians. That meant you could be terminated, what a pleasant word, up to the age of four. You don't want your bite. How did German mothers and fathers accept this? It illegally moved into adolescence as well because we don't want anybody escaping the net. We have to have this race that doesn't have disability. Uh, we've got to get rid of the image bearers that don't meet our standards. 1940, if you were in the Reich, you were slightly luckier. If you're outside the Reich and you were in that category, you were taken out, stripped and shot by stormtroopers. If you were in the Reich itself, you got it a little bit better. You were killed by carbon monoxide gas in portable chambers. 70,723 registered for that. Each decision, a doctor was paid the equivalent of the price of a cigarette. Ben Wienerhill has said, and this is chilling, these procedures which began in the greatest secrecy soon became known to almost everyone in the German population. Lenz proposed a law on euthanasia. The life of a patient who otherwise would need lifelong care might be ended up by medical measures of which he remains unaware. We're just going to kill you. That's a psychiatry. The whole of all of the psychiatric institutions in, in Germany, one psychiatrist protested. The ideology had set in so much. 1941, Brack, who was Hitler's personal physician and in charge of the euthanasia program, he decided that there was a great way of sterilizing people. If you sort of put them in an area to work and then just expose them to x-ray radiation, you could do it by mass. And that was at the time of the Einstegruppen when the mass murders of mental patients, gypsies and Jews, uh, started to happen. We had a high point in 1941. The church fought back. <laughs> so from the pulpits, uh, there was a, a bishop, and later an archbishop, who started to, uh, uh, to preach against this. And there were protest movements that rose up in both the German Christian Church, which is the one that was state allied to Hitler, and the confessional church, which was the one that refused. Um, uh, we had a high point in 1941. What effect did it have? Who knows, because things continued. Um, by September 1941, 71,000 mental patients had been killed by gas, and we started moving over to using Zyklon B, uh, to trying to kill uh, Soviet prisoners of wars in Auschwitz for the first time. Uh, Zyklon B is made by Fabian, who we all know as BASF. Himmler com commissioned physicians associated with euthanasia, and they had to choose out the concentration camp prisoners that weren't fit for work or unhealthy so that they could, could be ended. 1942, we had the first gas chamber built in Auschwitz. Prior to that, uh, mobile units were used. Um, and this guy, Snyder, uh, took 500 psychiatric patients, put them in an institution so that he could observe them psychiatrically. Then they were killed. Then their brains were dissected out and sent to him for the purpose of science. In that psychiatric ward, you were an idiot or even somebody 
Good epilepsy. Himmler took over. He said only physicians <laughs> trained in anthropology could carry out selection for killing and supervise the killing themselves in the extermination camps. Fisher, this guy that keeps propping up in all of this right from the beginning. I just can't even believe this is said. It's just so reminiscent of what's gone on in the last two years. It is a rare and special good fortune for a theoretical science to flourish at a time when the prevailing ideology welcomes it and its findings can immediately serve the policy of the state. 1943 was when a young Joseph Mengele was appointed as camp doctor at Auschwitz. His first act was to order all gypsies suspected of having typhoid to the gas chambers. 1943, we've had psychiatrists, physicians, pediatricians, now we're to the gynecologists. They'd worked out a mass sterilization policy where they reckoned they could possibly do several hundred in a day. Um, and at that stage, the Auschwitz crematoria had a capacity of nearly 5,000 a day. 1944, just before the end, Mengele sends large quantities of scientific information back to the Kaiser William Institute, where his boss was. Principally, his boss was interested in inherited conditions, liked twin studies, and was interested in color abnormalities in the eye. Five sets of twins with these abnormalities were killed by intracardiac injection, their eyes dissected and sent to Mengele's boss back at the Kaiser William Institute of Anthropology. Keep that in mind, I'm coming back to it. So the organs of murdered children were sent there. In 1945, as things were closing on the war, all of that stuff was sent to the West. We have it. And all the correspondence between the Kaiser William Institute and Joseph Mengele was destroyed. So that bit of history was removed from us, and that's important as well. Benno Mutterhill, again, this geneticist that's trying to understand this, this is what he said. He said, we see these cultured, these are doctors and psychiatrists and scientists, these cultured and learned men hesitating at times, but nevertheless making steady progress step by step along to the path to the final solution. They did not go the whole way. Those who stopped closed their eyes, or rather they blinded themselves to truth. These learned men wanted to know nothing, and so there came into being a remarkable continuum of self-blinded internal exiles coexisting with the annihilators, those who did go all the way to the final solution. So we're starting to see how Christians turned a blind eye to what was going on, or, or just people turned a blind eye to what was going on they didn't want to know. And so we end up with the doctor's trial at Nuremberg. I mean, most people remember all the big guys uh, that went to the Nuremberg trials. There were 24 doctors, only eight of whom were let off at Nuremberg, who were executed for uh, human experimentation, sterilization, and euthanasia. And from that, we got the Nuremberg Code which is, as of August, 75 years old. Um, and it contained basic ethical guidelines for experimentation on humans and was, while not written to law of every country, accepted as that 
we did have this lovely Operation Paperclip where Americans took some of the best doctors who should have maybe been at Nuremberg uh, to work, and that's a whole other story in and of itself. I want to pause just in this to talk about two Christians in the middle of this. I think everybody will recognize the first, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the cost of discipleship. The minister whose father was a psychiatrist um, and a Christian who was involved in the resistance in the war, who could not stand for this, who was part of the confessional church with Martin Niemöller, who ended up in the camps uh, because the confessional church wouldn't join with the German Christian church in their endorsement of the state. Everybody knows the story. Everybody has perhaps read some of Bonhoeffer's writings. Uh, Everybody probably knows that uh, just before the end of the war, he was hanged. What about the other Christian? Has anybody ever heard of him? Von Verscher? Well, who was Von Verscher? Well, he was a member of the confessional church too. And remember, the confessional church was made illegal. The leader of it, Martin E. Moeller, was taken away to the camps. He survived them. Uh, But it was made illegal because they wouldn't follow what the state wanted. So he must be a good guy too, probably. He was the doctor at the Kaiser William Institute whose star pupil was Joseph Mengele. He was the person that received the eyes of the twins. Um, And you have to ask yourself at the end of the day, in this situation, do you want to be a Dietrich Bonhoeffer and end up hanged? Or do you want to survive the war as von Verscher and live the rest of your life in the knowledge that the monster that you created was Joseph Mengele and that you took the samples for the purpose of science? So... Even though this book is not a Christian book, I suddenly, and it's only near the end of it, when, when Benno Mueller-Hill actually goes to speak to von Verscher's son and documents what he said and what they knew. And he, he was just, but dad went to church. Dad went to the confessional church. Dad did this. We had a nephew who was involved in the resistance. But very, very different people. And sometimes it explains how there is a cost to discipleship, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote um, uh, and there is a turn a blind eye to what's going on because it doesn't really affect me. And there are implications for that uh, for Christianity. It's back to that integrity. Are you on the inside what you are on the outside? Can you really turn the blind, a blind eye when another image bearer is, is, is being uh, ended, for want of a better word? So we, that leads us to the Nuremberg Code, which is really beyond the precautionary principle, first do no harm. The Nuremberg Code was set up on the basis of what was done in this horrible period by scientists and doctors and said, look, we have got to have boundaries to what you do when you experiment with human beings. Now, time's against us. There are 10 points. The first one is the longest. Um, But you can see there that everything is about informed consent. It's about voluntary consent which is absolutely essential. And there is everything down there from inducements to coercion which are absolutely banned. Um, you can take the time to read it at, at a later stage. The other, the other points just reinforce it. They're a lot shorter. Um, you must be expected to reveal fruitful results not procurable from other methods. Somebody, some, some of you might wonder why we were banned from using things like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. 
because you can't do a new thing on an experiment if you've got something that already do the same job. The experiment should be designed and based on results of animal experimentation. Oh dear, we skipped those this time. Um, you can just run your way through these. Uh, no physical or mental suffering or injury. Um, uh, if you believe that death could occur, uh, it shouldn't happen. Uh, the degree of risk should never exceed that determined by humanitarian importance. Um, proper preparation should be made uh, should there be the possibility of injury, disability, or death. And uh, you shouldn't take, do those experiments which could result in death unless you, as the experimenter, are one of the subjects. So if you're prepared to stand up and take the treatment, well then maybe the ethics committee might say, okay, I'm not so sure those that wanted us to take treatment um, were part of the experiment. During the course of the experiment, the human subject should be at liberty to bring the experiment to an end. So no means no. When I say I'm not doing this anymore, I might. Uh, during the course of the experiment, the scientists in charge must be prepared to, to terminate the experiment at any stage if they have probable cause to believe in the exercise of good faith, superior skill, and careful judgment required of them that a continuation of the experiment is likely to result in injury, disability, or death to the experimental subject. Keep that one in mind. Okay, what year is this? 1996, the 50th anniversary of the Nuremberg Code. British Medical Journal did an editorial called War Crimes and Medical Science. I like the title, it's back to Primo Levi's. It happened, therefore it can happen again. They called it not unique to one time or place. They could happen here. 1996. 2022, the 75th anniversary. How many people saw an editorial on the Nuremberg Code? How many people even knew it was the 75th anniversary? It's disappeared from moral knowledge. The World Medical Association came up with the Declaration of Helsinki, which took all of those principles and amplified them, made them even more strict um, and that is codified in UK law. So you may say, well, we didn't sign up to the Nuremberg Code, uh, but we did sign up to the Declaration of Helsinki, and you can look at where it is. I'm not going to have time to, re to read through the General Medical Council's uh, principles of decision-making and consent. The overriding principle is you've got to know, you've got to balance the risks, you have to be informed, and most of all, you have to consent. There's no inducements, there's no coercing, there's no you can go on holiday if you do this or you can have an ice cream. If you don't do this, you can't go on holiday and you can't have an ice cream. So uh, just, just, just remember, these are the embodiments of this. So we start with the precautionary principles. We've got the Nuremberg Code. Um, uh, we've got the Declaration of Helsinki. And we also have this principle which is enshrined in common law about autonomy to treatment. And this is the Royal College of Surgeons website where their barrister is, uh, uh, is explaining from the judgment of Montgomery versus Lanarkshire, a landmark judgment, which, was, which looked at the uh, surgeon-patient relationship and said at the end of the day, the person themselves, ha if they have capacity, has to have autonomy of treatment. And you can look it up yourself, the references is there at the bottom. 
So it said an adult person of sound mind is entitled to decide which of any of the available forms of treatment to undergo. The doctor is therefore under a duty to take reasonable care to ensure that the patient is aware of any material risks involved in any recommended treatment and of any reasonable alternative. The test of materiality is whether, in the circumstances of the particular case, a reasonable person in the patient's condition would be likely to attach significance to the risk, or the doctor is or should reasonably be aware of the particular patient would be likely to attach significance to it. Medical treatments will come to mandates and passports. Okay, that's the run-through history and where things went really wrong and the things in medical ethics that were put in place to put it right. Okay, it happened, therefore it can happen again. Primo Levi, were there red flags that medics should have seen? Uh, I put that to myself. Were there red flags that the church should have seen? when we look at these ethics in the context of two years of COVID-19. I put this slide up to remind myself, I was there. This is a real illness. It is not fictitious. Um, my point is that we went into a huge overreach and I want to show you how um, there were patients that got really sick. There were patients that died. And we had to manage them. So if there's anybody here that thinks that there wasn't a disease, then you're on a different wavelength to me completely. The point of the matter was that, well, we'll just see how it how it panned out in a complete overreach in terms of medical ethics. These are chest x-rays and CT scans showing the, the sort of cytokine storm that we got with clotting and infections um, in relation to people that got uh, the very rare um, full-blown COVID-19 syndrome. Okay, we need to be on the same page. If you don't believe in viruses, it's probably you're not going to like this. Um, uh, Bottom line is, things that are one micron in size, none of us can see. Okay, so we have to look at what we can analyze and what is there. Um, SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus in an envelope. It belongs to the coronavirus family, and four of those caused, caused the common cold. So when we started talking about the novel coronavirus, it wasn't really entirely true. It's seasonality. You get the cold and the flu, by and large, in winter periods, but believe it or not, people still get it. In summer, there are peaks uh, in seasons. It replicates exponentially. In other words, it doubles every six hours. It's airborne. It's one micron in diameter, okay? So therefore, it spreads by aerosol spread, okay? If your virus is more than 100 microns, it will sink. So if you cough out a virus that's 120 microns, two meters might save you. It'll go out and gravity will take over. When you're one micron in size, you're spread by aerosols. So evaporation takes over from gravity. And that means that your virus can be suspended in air for hours, drift for miles in thermal currents. And if you just look at how foot and mouth disease spread to the Isle of Wight, it jumped across 90 miles, okay? So this is a respiratory virus which is 
everywhere. Okay? If you have it and are infected, you will be putting out 8,000 virus particles in every breath. So by the end of your infection, one person will have probably exhaled 3 trillion viral particles. A single person could make enough virus, if it was spread around, to infect the entire UK population in 10 hours. It takes about 55 hours to do America, just in terms of the number of viral particles. The risks for this became evident really early. If you were elderly, the average age of dying of COVID-19 or with COVID-19 was greater than the average age of death. We knew we needed to protect the elderly. Males had a preponderance, the obese, there were certain ethnic origins, those with chronic disease like hypertension and diabetes, and those from economically deprived areas. <laughs> it's, it's there in, 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 this, in the statistics. Infection can cause disease. For most people, COVID-19 caused what we know as a viremia, what you would call a cold, where the virus goes around your system, causes a bit of havoc, and you have a miserable time, and that's the end of the story. Uh, for some people, it was a very small group, uh, particularly in the vulnerable, their immune system went into what we know as a cytokine storm, and they ended up with uh, respiratory distress syndrome, where their, their lungs would fill up with both uh, superative um, infective material, pneumonia, and at the same time have clotting, so that you had uh, pulmonary emboli in the lungs uh, themselves. Um, those that were exposed, you had to get a certain amount of it. So if you happen to work in an intensive care unit, uh, where ventilators are doing this all the time and you're not protected in some form or another, you're going to be, you're going to have a, uh, there's going to be more about that's going to give you a certain threshold uh, for infected. And, but, but what really determines uh, whether you're going to get infected is whether you're immune to that particular strain. Okay, so you all know the story of husbands and wives, one who was really, really ill and slept in the same bed as their husband who never got it. And then six months later, New strain around, the husband got it, but the wife didn't get it. And so, so we know this. Um, so the virus has to get through the respiratory tract, penetrate the mucous lining of the airway, escape all the IgA antibodies that are around to try and kill it, bind to the cell surface, enter the cell, then use the cell mechanisms to replicate. Remember, this is RNA, our friend. Um, leave by budding, and then it can infect all the neighboring cells itself. Once you get a certain threshold, that's when you get the cells starting to die um, and the patient becomes symptomatic and that's the infectious period. You're unlikely to avoid exposure if you're susceptible to a particular variant because this is airborne. It's going everywhere. And the toxicity to, due to this, uh, which is important as well, is due to a spiked glycoprotein on the surface, which causes this inflammation and thrombosis. Okay, if you haven't burnt me at the stake because you don't believe any of that, then we can use that as a basis to go on and look about uh, what was going on uh, with this in, in, in the last two years. So, um, I've come up with, I could talk for 10 hours on all of this and it's just hard to distill it down and make it understandable yet where you can go and look up the papers yourself and, and, and look things through. So I've really taken it from a church perspective. So were there any red flags in this that medics and church people should have woken up to 
uh, that said there's something, something wrong with this picture. Uh, it's not quite what we're being told. So I'm going to start with a red flag about the origins of the virus and uh, what most people will know as the Great Barrington Declaration and how it was put down. So the old quote of Elias, printed often enough, it becomes a quasi-truth. And if such a truth is repeated often enough, it becomes an article of belief, a dogma, and men will die for it. In other words, if you tell a lie often enough, it becomes the truth. So there's a paper. A SARS-like cluster of circulating bat coronaviruses shows potential for human emergence. Nature Medicine, 2020. Yeah? No, 2015. We knew about this and its potential a long time ago. We knew that Zengli was working at the Wuhan Institute of Virology doing SARS research. She worked with another character called Ralph Barrick as early as 2002. She worked for 15 years with Peter Daszak of the EcoHealth Alliance. And in 2015, Barrick and Zengli replaced the spike of one coronavirus with another, creating a new virus lethal to mice, which had human lung cells. 2015. Barrick had developed a technique where when you made these changes in the genetic code, that anyone looking on would find it difficult to know that you'd spliced the bit out or spliced the bit in. And he shared that with our friend, the bat lady, Zenglia, in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, we know uh, that the National Institutes of Health illegally paid for coronavirus research at the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology, and they, they sequestered it through uh, uh, Peter Daszak's Eagle Health Alliance. So they had funded them to the tune of $6 million for this research. The protocols were violated. Uh, they never said that they had made an organism that, could, that had increased infectivity. Uh, and remember that all of this research was banned in America by Barack Obama. Uh, it's what we know as gain-of-function research. It took a couple of guys on the internet to search around a wee bit and find out that uh, Daszak's Eco Health Alliance and the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology applied for a £14 million grant to the defense organization in America to engineer a furin cleavage site. Bear that in mind. I think when Jonathan talks later, he'll explain that one to you. Good luck. Um, and uh, basically, that makes the virus easier to enter human cells. The DARPA decided that wasn't to be, and they declined that grant. But it's clear right out there that Eco Health Alliance, who were funneling this money to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, had got had applied for that grant for that purpose. When this all broke, uh, it was Peter Daszak that contacted Fauci and said, guys, this looked like it came from a lab. Um, and they were all a bit worried that the furin cleavage site was there. And so uh, a grand cover-up of what was going on had to take place. And incidentally, then we had a Lancet commission formed, uh, which just actually reported on Wednesday it was uh, by a guy called Jeremy Sachs, who I normally would have no time for, but he actually had the courage to actually stand up to what was going on. I'll tell you a little bit of the story. There's a pile of emails, and there's a couple of names in there that you'll recognize, and one that, uh, well, you'll recognize Anthony Fauci. He's been in our nightmares for the last two years, and in medical nightmares for the last 40 years. 
Um, uh, but the other one that you may or may not know is uh, Dr. Francis Collins, who's his boss and the director of the National Institutes of Health until he had to resign. Some of you might know Francis Collins from his book, The Language of God. He was the head of the Human Genome Project, and uh, he says that he discovered God looking at the information in genes. Uh, so he became quite a prominent uh, celebrity Christian, uh, and he was Fauci's boss. In January 2020, Fauci knew that his organization had funded Equal Health Alliance for the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the grants. Uh, by February, Fauci and Collins and at least 11 other scientists convened a conference call and on the conference call they were warned that COVID-19 may have leaked from the WIV or the Wuhan Institute of Virology and may have been intentionally genetically manipulated. It just took three days for Fauci and Collins and four others to decide um, we're going to get uh, a paper out on this, which they wrote. So after deciding that this looked highly suspicious that it came from a lab and had human engineering with it, they decided that they would write a paper to Nature Medicine which said absolutely it did not. By April 16, 2020, two months after that call, um, uh, they were expressing dismay that the Nature Medicine article wasn't taking, being taken very seriously, that people still thought there was scope that this could have been from a lab leak and they had to get this, in inverted commas, put down, close inverted commas. Um, Collins explicitly asked for more public pressure. Uh, Fauci used the Nature Medicine paper and there was also a paper uh, signed that went to the Lancet um, to stifle this. So rather than being transparent with the committee, which was investigating this, uh, HSS and NIH, which are the two big health organizations in the States, continued to hide, obfuscate, and seal the truth by continuing to refuse to cooperate with our request. Your agencies are choosing to hide information that will help inform the origins of the ongoing pandemic, prevent future pandemics, respond to future pandemics, inform the U.S. current national security posture, and restore confidence in our public health experts. Better not to say. Why? because this is exposed that this is going on, not just in Wuhan, but it's going on around the world. This is the medical version of extraordinary rendition. We can't do it in the States, so we'll do it in a country that doesn't stop us from doing it. And that should actually strike us all with fear. So there's lots of people that were in on that meeting. Um, look at some of the names up here. Jeremy Farrer, director of the Welcome Institute in London, which actually came from the Society of Eugenics. Uh, Anthony Fauci, remember this guy, Patrick Valance? Yeah, yeah he was in on it too. Uh, Christian Drosden, do you know who he is? He's the guy that managed to write a paper and have it peer reviewed and published in 24 hours on the PCR test. All of these guys were in on it, but the one that really gets me is the director, Francis Collins, because I don't know about any of the rest of them, but. I know he claims to be a Christian. So all of these guys were basically saying from a natural evolutionary point of view, the only thing here that strikes me unusual is the furin cleavage sites. So they were saying this didn't happen naturally. There's another guy that was saying he's really bothered because he's having a hard time explaining an event outside the lab and the likely explanations for this as being, uh, as being engineered. So yes, we had all of these guys 
uh, wrote to the Lancet and said, absolutely not, it's a conspiracy theory, this came from a lab. Um, and then they had the audacity to say, we declare no competing interests. Seven of them worked with EcoHealth Alliance and four of them worked with Barrick. No competing incidents. And the Lancet said, nothing to see here and published it. There's the paper that said, uh, um, our analyses clearly show that SARS-CoV-2 is not a laboratory construct or purposely manipulated virus. After them saying, this is what we think it is. Um, this is medical literature for you. This is what people believe. This is following the science. It goes on and on and on. Um, uh, there's Francis Collins wondering if there's anything that the National Institutes of Health can do to help put down this very destructive conspiracy with what seems growing momentum. Very unhappy that the Nature of Medicine article didn't seem to be doing the trick, uh, wanting the National Academy to weigh in on the conspiracy theorists. Um, Fauci, nothing to see here. It'll go away soon. There's the letter uh, to, in, in terms of the investigation, and then suddenly they had to admit, oh, hang on a minute, mm, yeah, we did. We gave them this money, but we didn't really know what it was for. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's real. So the Lancet set up a, a COVID commission run by Jeremy Sachs. Um, Jeremy Sachs, I say I normally wouldn't have a lot of time for him, um, but I admire what he did in this situation. His first error was to appoint Peter Daszak, as chair of the investigatory committee on the origins of the virus, wonder what problems there could be there. Uh, and it was only about six months into the investigation when it was, oh, this definitely came from uh, a mangolin, uh, even though we could find no scientific evidence of that transmission from a zoonosis through a cross, that they, uh, that, uh, they, 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 they said, we said, hang on a minute here, who, who do you work for? And the commission, oh right, okay, how are you, right, you're sacked. So Peter Daszak had to go, and Jeffrey Sachs, he says, he said, I thought things would now start to happen, people would start to look at this seriously. Uh, no, things got worse. They doubled down, conspiracy theories, all of this sort of stuff, and then he discovered that all the people on the team had been chosen by Daszak and worked for Daszak. So the whole commission on the investigation of the origins of uh, SARS-CoV-2 were given up. Um, it would be fair to say that Jeremy Sachs came out fighting though. He said the evidence was mounting up more and more and more that we had to keep, the, specifically because of the furon cleavage site, we had to keep this on the table that this was genetically engineered. And just this week on Wednesday, they published in The Lancet the outcome of their commission and essentially Jeremy Sachs has now been pilloried <laughs> by members of the EcoHealth Alliance in the scientific press for saying that the lab leak theory is still on the table. So take what you want. Where's the ethics in this? Where's the openness? Where's the transparency? What it has shown us is that this state of bioemergency is going on all around the world and is being sponsored by the US dollar. Here's my friend Francis Collins again. He's an image bearer and I have to love him, but um, he's right up there with Bill Gates at the minute in my book. Um, uh, basically, all of us know that uh, at the start of this, three eminent professors 
of medicine and science and epidemiology got together and came up with an idea which basically did what we used to do. And they called it, they met in Great Barrington, they called it the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, and they said, look, who's at risk here? The old. So in short, what we're going to do is we're going to propose mechanisms to protect the old. And we're going to get all the young people who are going to get a cold out so that we get herd immunity uh, rising by this, uh, by this method. Um, here is our good friend, Mr. Collins. This proposal from the three fringe epidemiologists who met with the secretary seems to be getting a lot of traction and even a co-signature from Nobel Prize winner Michael Levitt at Stanford. There needs to be a quick and devastating published takedown of its premises. I don't see anything like that online yet. Is it on their way? That's, that's the head of evangelical Christianity in, in, in America. And there is the Great Barrington Declaration as of yesterday. Uh, 936,000, sorry, 932,600 plus signatures, a lot of them from doctors and scientists. And these three fringe epidemiologists, Martin Kuldoff, professor of medicine at Harvard, Sunita Gupta, professor of theoretic epidemiology at Oxford, and Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine and economics at Stanford. Seriously, uh, fringe epidemiologists, according to our, our good friend uh, Collins. And it, it, you know, I, I could go on and on, and uh, I have to be careful, but, but I watched a Zoom call between Francis Collins in his, director, uh, his role as director of the NIH with prominent evangelical leaders in America and the UK. He held up a paper mask and said it was a life-saving device. <laughs> he told them to tell their people to get vaccinated, he told them not, do you know what, it just, I'm not going to go on, but it was horrifying to watch. And then I saw, you know, people that I really respected, like Tim Keller, who I'm not going to say anything about, he's battling pancreatic cancer at the minute, but Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, which was the center of evangelical Christianity in New York, said, you can't sit in the sanctuary if you're not double vaccinated. It said you can't come to church if you're under 12 because the vaccine's not available yet to under 12s. This is the result of a Zoom call where somebody comes in and gives an ideology which is spread and accepted by evangelical Christian leaders and influencers which has permeated our society and it makes it hard to listen to. So long story about where we came from. What about the pandemic itself? So I'll quote Chris Whitty. For the great majority of people, this will be a mild or moderate disease, anything from a sniffle to having to go to bed for a few days rather than with a mild few. March 2020. Okay, so is this a pandemic? Well, yes, I saw some of the people that came a cropper of this, and we knew who was vulnerable, and we had a declaration which said, do the right thing. Uh, but no, uh, we had to have a World Health Organization that said that uh, this was a novel virus, you heard that at the start, the novel coronavirus. No one said this is a version of the virus that gives you the cold. Uh, it's just that we think somebody might have done something to it in a lab. Um, uh, uh, and so we, we declared a pandemic. Um, so what is a pandemic? Of course, the definition of that had to be changed because a, a pandemic was anything causing illness with substantially higher than even the most severe winter epidemics 
with mortality increased in younger age groups. In other words, it had to be worse than before and it had to be affecting the young. So was it worse than before? Uh, well, you know, let, let's, look, let's look at the figures for that. Um, was it worse than before? We'll answer that question. Was it affecting the younger age groups? No, we know from the infection fatality rates that it was predominantly the elderly. Uh, so was it a pandemic? I'll leave that for you to decide. Um, John Ioannidis, um, I apologize if I got his name wrong, um, uh, very respected epidemiologist, and uh, he looked at the data and forced the World Health Organization to accept that the infection fatality rate uh, associated with this was very, very low, and he actually uh, stratified it according to age, uh, and the World Health Organization had accepted it, and they downgraded in the first week of the pandemic, this from a serious level to a moderate threat on the basis of that. But by that stage, the horse had bolted. Okay? After collating the sum of the evidence on infection fatality rate, Professor Ioannidis, Professor of Medicine at was at Stanford, estimated a global, in other words, a worldwide infection fatality rate of 0.15%. In other words, 99.85% of people that got this would survive. Pandemic? I don't know. He estimated that for America and Europe, it would be 0.2. And uh, for people living outside of institutions in the community, down to uh, 0.3 to 0.4% overall. The Imperial College, with our good friend, um, the professor, uh, decided that the infection fatality rate was actually 0.9. And on that basis, assuming that 85% of people would be infected, they decided that half a million people in the UK were going to die. So there's the risk. So if you're 75 years old, your chance of dying is the same as flipping a coin five times and it coming up heads every time. If you're under five, you have more chance of dying in a fire this year. Okay, so that's, that's the, the, the work that was done. So you're already starting to see the overreach in this. So keep in mind, we have a nasty disease, but we're seeing the overreach that's, that's, that's coming in with it. And it didn't stop us standing to clap for the NHS. It didn't stop us converting the XL to a 4,000 bed unit, which ended up with 14 patients in it and was pretty much closed after the fanfare that was associated with it. Now, I don't know how well you can see this graph, but if you want to take one graph home with you, this is the one, okay? So what we have here is weekly deaths in England and Wales. So the ONS data is probably the best that we can get our hands on. So you've got weekly deaths in England and Wales per 100,000 of the population with a four-week rolling average between 1983 and 2021. So up on the, uh, the y-axis there, you've got the weekly deaths per 100,000. And on the x-axis, you've got the year spread out by weeks. So each of those lines represents a year. And we'll see over here, it's maybe not showing the best. 2021 was up there near the top. Um, 1997 was even bigger, uh, 1990, 1999, all of these, particularly 1989, was a huge surge in, in death, in seasonal death, which is generally caused by viral respiratory illness. So we got this lump here in 2020, about April, where we had an excess again. 
It doesn't even reach the 1989 winter uh, level, um, but it was significant. How much of that peak was made worse by the non-pharmaceutical interventions and the lockdowns it remains to be seen. Uh, however, it was a significant peak. So all I'm saying from that slide is if we call this a pandemic and people did get ill, remember the first slide, if we call this a pandemic, why did we not do it in 1999, 1990, 1997 and 20, you know, why not in all those other years? You know, it's only five years ago that we had 50,000 excess flu deaths in the winter uh, here. Nobody called it a pandemic. Yes, we had the Guardian writing every day about the fact that people were waiting for long times in emergency departments and all sorts of things like that, and ambulances were queued up outside. But because we didn't label it a pandemic, people went on with their lives. They got on with it. Sadly, people die of viral respiratory disease. If I could take one thing away from the world... <laughs> Viral respiratory and cancer might be up there uh, near the top, but it happens. And we have to remember that some of these people that died, died of viral respiratory disease just like people over here did. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if I can call it a pandemic. We certainly made it one. Um, uh, and the, that curve really worries me because I was there while everybody was sent home. We had to be there. I saw elderly people being moved out of hospital into nursing homes in one trust. They were moved into hotel because there was nowhere to put them to make way for the surge of illness that was coming. We all went on emergency rotas. We were told to live away from our families for six months. Um, we were working back to back. We had staff redeployed from other areas to our area. So we were seeing this, and then suddenly we went from seeing nearly 300 patients a day to seeing 100 patients a day. And doctors were going, what do you want us to do? I've been here for three hours. Um, it was like the only time in the history of emergency medicine that there was no waiting time in, 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 in the whole time. Did this affect our hospitals? Stay home protect the NHS. There in the red, sorry, my red lights disappeared, is the curve for people that tested positive with a PCR test. And here is our hospital bed occupancy. It had virtually no effect. Here's our expected mortality, ages over 65. So um, I lost my light, but you can see the additional seasonal spike uh, which happened in April. So we had a little bit of a, a flu surge in the winter of 19 through into 20. And then the dominant virus became SARS-CoV-2. And our friend flu disappeared. And, uh, uh, th you know, it sounds funny, but this happens. You get a dominant virus that comes along. And if you get one like this, and they're, they're, you can always plot it by longitude where it's going to affect in the world at a particular time. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. But what really shows in this is, yes, we have our spike in April. But before we got the next spike, we introduced the vaccine. And it's not a vaccine. I keep saying that. It's not a vaccine in the sense that it was many vaccines. Um, so people go, have you had the vaccine? Well, did you have the 
chimp adenovirus one, or did you have the, you know, and so on and so forth? But that's when it was introduced, and suddenly we got another big, huge amount of excess deaths. And uh, really, we're into 2022, and suddenly we're seeing the Daily Telegraph going, why, why are we 10% up on excess deaths when none of them are COVID? Scratch, scratch our heads. What on earth could be going on? And no one's willing to really stand up and say, well, let's look at what we did in the last two years that might account for this. Um, that's just the same thing for all age groups, uh, showing again those excess deaths in 21 and 22 after vaccines uh, were introduced. So red flag number three, are you following the science? Okay. Um, science is a discipline. It is something where you test and test and test and you show something by reproducibility. The science, unfortunately, is an ideology. It follows a narrative that cannot be uh, questioned, which is the total opposite of science in terms itself. So when we look at these uh, mad modelers, um, uh, we'll talk about the maddest one in a minute, but uh, Prof Medley from SAGE was honest. He said, we generally model what we're asked to model. There's a dialogue in which policy teams discuss with the modelers what they need to inform their policy. In other words, here's where we want to go. Show us how we could get there using a model. Not, here's a model that predicts this, and this is where we're going to end up. I mean, at least he was honest um, in terms of saying it. This creation is made in the image of God, and I have to like him, but uh, uh, he... Uh, Really, uh, how anybody allowed this man to, uh, to, to, to make modeling and predictions is beyond me. This man, Professor Ferguson, in uh, really, well, there, I'm not sure, you probably can't read it back there, just uh, he was the one that ended up culling uh, 11 million sheep and cattle in the 2001 outbreak of foot and mouth disease because he predicted 150,000 people would die in the UK. And we reckon there were under 200. Um, in 2002, he was at it again, and he predicted that 50,000 people would die from exposure to BSE, mad cow disease, if you want to call it, in beef. Um, I think we made 177 deaths. In 2005, they wheeled him out again, and he said this time that 150 million people would be killed from bird flu. Um, worldwide, it was 200. And 82. Um, uh, then in 2009, uh, a government estimate based on Ferguson's advice said in a reasonable worst case scenario that the swine flu would lead to 65,000 British deaths, 457. So this is the man that in March of 2020 was tasked to get out his crystal ball and tell us what was going to happen with the coronavirus. And he ignored John Anidas's infection fatality rate of 0.15 and decided to use an infection fatality rate of 0.9 three times. And he said that 85,000 people were going to be infected with this and 0.9 uh, were going to die. And on that basis, he came up with the idea that in the UK, half a million people were going to die. Now, can you imagine if you're in that cog of wheel between science, medicine, and government, and in the government you've decided we're going to sit this out, this thing that's going to give us a mild sniffle for most people, and we're going to protect the elderly, and then 
this Egypt comes in with his crystal ball and says this. And nobody says, uh, sorry, Neil, you didn't get it right before. <laughs> and it took him six weeks to admit that he used 13-year-old computer code. Uh, it, I mean, it, it's just the problem was that it had already happened. Um, the cat was out of the bag. Boris freaked. And we had the, you must stay at home and fright night. And suddenly people became very, very afraid. We were all very, very afraid. If you say to me that you weren't very, very afraid, I think you probably weren't listening at the time because we were all told that this had the infection fatality rate of Ebola. Okay, viral hemorrhagic fever. So it was like, oh my goodness, so really you should live in the hospital for six months and not go home just in case when you die you might sort of kill everybody at home. That's the sort of message that was being put out based on his estimates. Um, and so we got this half a million people and 2.2 million people would die in the United States. So as soon as O'Grady did it here, O'Grady did it there and we all locked down in lockstep right across the world. So in retrospect, he had a sort of moment of conscience. Um, he was a bit upset when people found out that he was breaking his own suggested lockdown to sleep with uh, a married man's wife. Um, uh, so Professor Lockdown, as we called him. Um, but he had a, a, a bout of conscience where he said, yes, you know what, my prediction was off. Seriously, Neil, really? Uh, it was off. Um, but, you know, he, 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 he couldn't give up. He had to fight back, and he, he still defends to this day the 500,000, the half a million people that were going to die in the United Kingdom. And that is the figure that they're now predicting survival uh, based on, which is just absolute uh, nonsense. Uh, and he couldn't give up. After he was banned from SAGE, um, they invited him back in a different role. And he started, he generated figures for them that cases would hit 200,000 a day and generated the second lockdown and so forth. Why anybody in the world, I mean, if you talk to any serious science, they go, but we don't listen to him. He always gets it wrong. So how did the world listen to him? Every country in the world looked at these predictions. He predicted for every country in the world. And they all locked down apart from Sweden. What about what the government thought would happen with lockdown? So stay home, save lives. The government didn't really want to tell you what they had calculated. Uh, and you can look at it. I mean, it's the economic impact, the impact upon schools, the impact upon health, mental health. They said 200,000 people would die as a result of lockdown. 200,000. So let's go to the precautionary principle. First of all, I will do no harm. I will do nothing. I will prevent 200,000 people dying from lockdown. Or we can believe the mad modeler who said half a million people would die because he's got such a good track record. So guess what? We locked down. And I think we're seeing the consequences of this now. If you haven't got a child that struggled through school in the last two years, if you haven't known somebody who was refused to be with their dying relative, if you haven't known somebody who couldn't be at a funeral in all of this, why? For an aerosol virus that can travel miles. It's everywhere. Bob Seeley put it up with the modeling. Never before has so much harm been done to so many people by so few 
based on so little questionable, potentially flawed data. I believe the use of modeling is pretty much getting up there for a national scandal. Modeling and forecasts was the ammunition that drove lockdown and created the climate of manipulated fear, and I believe that creation of fear was pretty despicable and pretty unforgivable. So we've now got a few people coming out of the closet. Uh, Rishi uh, Sunak, he, he's decided he was in on some of the calls and he didn't agree with them. Uh, and Sage were, were scratching their heads, uh, and, and, you know, but they had to come up with the party line. I, I mean, seriously, uh, we, we, we've seen people die because of this. Um, we've seen the impact on society that has come, not forgetting those chest x-rays at the start because people did die of COVID-19. Another red flag, non-pharmaceutical interventions. In other words, our lockdowns, our social distancing, our masking, our rule of six, our today you can walk up a mountain, but tomorrow you must not shake it all about. The rules were so patently ridiculous uh, that they were contradictory even in the same broadcast. Um, it made an absolute nightmare for trying to implement them in the context of a hospital. Um, but the non-pharmaceutical interventions were there. And the idea was that this, this has never been tried in a pandemic response before. This was, around the, uh, this was the control trial, except that the only control that we had was Sweden and maybe China, but we don't know what was going on there. Okay, you can't really see that, um, but what we have is the peak of the COVID deaths and where each of the pharma pharmaceutical interventions were put into place. So we all love the mask mandate. You remember all the scientists told us that not wearing... Okay. Um, yeah, if somebody can, somebody can do that, that's grand. Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know how to. That's <laughs> so anyway, yeah, um, we all know the guys that stood up, every single one of them, and said masks don't work. The virus is too small, and it's not going to protect you from anything. But then when it became a politically correct thing, they said masks uh, do work. Um, so, yeah, here's the effect on deaths of, of masks. None. Um, so, yeah, when we look at all of that, and when we look at the studies that were done, the Dan mask study that was done uh, in, in, Den in Denmark, uh, Professor Carl Hennehan from the... Uh, Oxford Society for Evidence-Based Medicine did uh, analysis of that, which earned him a complete censorship in social media um, and basically said, your masks don't work. So what we can actually conclude is that wearing a mask is nearly as good as not wearing a mask in this, in this circumstance. I, don't, don't get me wrong, um, in the context of ICU and when you're dealing with patients that are dying of this, you do wear an N95 mask. You put it on, this is a proper mask, which I challenge you to wear for four hours. My face came up in a, <laughs> and I can show you pictures where my face is just swollen after wearing one for, for four hours. It, it, the, but they have to be put on with a proper donning and doffing technique with a hat and uh, goggles and, and, and gowns and gloves. Um, the idea that, um, as my friend Francis said, that this little bit of cotton that you take in and out of your handbag and put over your face is somehow going to help you is such, such a nonsense um, that, that, that comes along with it. But yeah, there's several of these graphs. This one just shows uh, London, or sorry, England, 
um, and then the different regions um, that came, and you can see the grey one at the bottom was London, uh, so where you have that densely packed population with uh, areas of high socioeconomical decline, uh, that's when, where you got a lot of the big rest. But all of these uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions occurred after the deaths had peaked and were starting to come down. In other words, did they really have any effect at all? Um, we're starting now to get people realizing that. We've got about 400 scientific papers that showed the economic harms uh, that these cause without any real benefit. Um, uh, this one just shows the same thing, but there's a graph with mobility, uh, social mobility, when we were locked down and you could meet two and a half people or whatever it was um, uh, over time. And it's just no correlation, non-pharmaceutical interventions really had no effect on this at all. And it just stands to sense. If this was a 100 micron virus that had a trajectory of two meters, uh, when you coughed it out, well, maybe if you stay two meters away, you mightn't get it. But this is an aerosol virus that's going to be carried in currents all over the country. I mean, it's just a complete and utter nonsense that come along with it. That's just it. It's shown again. What, what effect did non-pharmaceutical interventions have? There's the effect it had. So good luck to you if you're looking for a neurology or a, a, a rheumatology appointment in Northern Ireland for the first time. You might be waiting beyond your expected length of life uh, as it goes. Uh, there's a number of surgical procedures um, uh, that went down. The last one is England. Um, there's, the, there's where you can go and look for the, the amount of um, uh, studies, 400 studies now collated there that have shown the harms uh, of lockdown that comes along with it. Repurposed drugs, I'm just going to mention very quickly. There's lots and lots and lots of drugs that were out there that have great safety profiles that showed some effect. And then there was a new one out there that had been used in the cancer circuit that was killing people, and we called it remdesivir. Um, so uh, we, we banned all of the ones that were cheap and safe, and even if they, they, they might have worked, and we are still using remdesivir. Um, hydroxychloroquine, you want a story of medical fraud? This was an article that appeared and had to be retracted in The Lancet. So the Lancet published this article, which basically said from all of this database around the world, people were dying because they got hydroxychloroquine as treatment. Pe people take hydroxychloroquine as prophylaxis for malaria. It was just unbelievable. Um, 300 scientists, including our friend Neil Ferguson, scratched his head and said, this could not be right. Something is wrong with this paper, and so they wrote to the Lancet and said, we need an investigation here, because apparently more people died of hydroxychloroquine in Australia than live in Australia. Um, uh, so uh, they, they, they went back, and, and they went to the company that did this, and they said, uh, oh, sorry, our mistake. We included some Asian figures in with Australia. Very sorry about that. But even Neil Ferguson wasn't happy with that, and they looked at this. So what did they do? They said, show us your data. So they went to the lead author, who's a professor at Brigham and Women's in Boston, and said, you know, you wrote this paper, show us your data. He said, well, no, they put my name on the paper. I haven't seen the data. So they said, well, who has the data? The data was owned by a company called Surgisphere. Now, in the analysis, if you Googled Surgisphere when it existed, it consisted of a vascular surgeon who was a bit of a maverick and a porn star. And Surgisphere did not exist. So when they asked for the raw data that caused the World Health Organization to overnight ban the use of hydroxychloroquine and take it out of their trials. Um, it was that paper. 
But again, the horse had bolted. No point in closing the gate. Um, that is the science, and it's very, very dodgy science. Testing then. Everybody knows, everybody's heard the term PCR, but very few people know what a PCR test actually is. Um, a polymerase chain reaction test. Uh, it was invented by Professor Carrie Mullis, uh, who was uh, not very happy with Anthony Fauci uh, in all of his life, but he won the Nobel Prize for this. Um, when uh, Carrie Mullis was asked, how do they misuse PCR to estimate all these supposed free viral RNAs that may or may not be there, Carrie Mullis said, it's just a process used to make a lot of something out of something. That's what it is. It doesn't tell you what you're sick. It doesn't tell you that the thing you ended up with was going to hurt you or anything like that. So if you look at the test, it was very, very clever. It used an exponential curve where you did a number of cycles. And every cycle, you doubled it. So 2 to the power of 2 is 4. 2 to the power of 3 is 8. You don't have to be up there till 25 till you've amplified what is there millions of times. And Carrie Mullis said, once you get above cycle thresholds of 25, it could be anything that's there. So what did we run? We ran at cycle thresholds of 37 to 40, uh, which essentially made the false positives for this test so ridiculous that it was unbelievable. Regulation then, in one slide, says it all. Here's June Rain, who took over at the Medical Health Regulation Agency. This is her statement. From watchdog to enabler, regulation in COVID and after. In other words, we're not going to stop people doing something that's going to cause people harm. We're going to encourage them and not really look at what's going on. What happened as a result of this? Okay, so we live in the commuter age. When I started medicine, we had a yellow card that you tore off the back of your British national formula and you sent it in to, for people to look at and say, well, you know, this person got this new drug and really they weren't too well after it. And it was up to the Medical Health Regulatory Agency to investigate that and decide if this was an adverse reaction that might ultimately involve the drug being withdrawn. New, new approach from June Rain. No, 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 no. We're not going to do this watchdog thing. We're going to enable. So if you want to look at the yellow card system reporting for the last two years, it's an absolute shambles. And you will not find any meaningful data that is there at all, sadly, including the data that I put in uh, in terms of yellow cards. Um, they have completely ruined it. Uh, and I'm not entirely certain if it wasn't deliberate. We're supposed to first do no harm. The whole regulatory agency that's supposed to prevent drug companies from doing this and earning money. Remember, there's big things at stake here. Pfizer alone in this year will earn the equivalent of Pakistan's gross national product for their injection. Big things at stake here. And we now have a, a regulator who is enabling people and takes funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. All right, okay. This one I, I'm going to struggle with to... Can we wrap you up? Can you wrap me up? Yeah, that's okay. Right. You, you, you yep. Yep, so. okay. Um, right, okay. Right, you're going to have to do homework at home for this one because this, this is the most difficult one, the trials. Okay, so background to this. Here's what I got at medical school. You don't see it around very much anymore, but there's the measles curve. The virus was identified in 1950. Measles had almost disappeared. Uh, we didn't get a vaccination for measles until 1970. Okay, there's pertussis. 
The vaccine was introduced in 1935. The curve was already coming down. So there's more to fixing infectious disease than a vaccine. And the debate is still out there. Unfortunately, the science says it isn't. Okay, um, so uh, uh, this is just about data sharing behavior. This is about fraud. So uh, these papers have shown that very, very few people can produce raw data from scientific studies that are produced in medical journals. And a paper in the BMJ 2019, one of the meta-reviewers for the Cochrane database who was reviewing treatments of mannitol for raised intracranial pressure, one of his colleagues said to him, do you realize you're reviewing studies that don't exist? published in peer-reviewed medical journals, do not exist. And then other ones did not have raw material. And he came to the conclusion that you have to assume everything that's published in a medical journal is fraudulent until proven otherwise. And uh, uh, Peter Horton, who's the uh, editor of the, of the Lancet, has already commented that the pharmaceutical injury, uh, industry owns the medical journals and the undue influence that they have on pushing these things through is, is unbelievable. Okay, so what sort of companies are we dealing with in pharmacology? Uh, we're dealing with Pfizer. Uh, there you go, 2.3 million for fraudulent marketing. Uh, biggest criminal payout in, in pharmaceutical history. But we're going to trust them to be safe and effective. It's grand. Okay, we changed the definition of uh, what was herd immunity uh, so that the World Health Organization said we don't want people to get herd immunity by getting through natural immunity. We want to, we want to get it uh, through vaccination. Uh, we changed the definition of vaccine uh, so that we could include all of these new genetic therapies that were there. So the FDA definition of human gene therapy, all products that mediate their effects with transcription or translation of transferred genetic material or specifically altering host human genetic sequences. And as such, they were put on a 15-year moratorium. So you could not put your product out to market for 15 years after experimenting. Unless, of course, you had a state of emergency when we desperately, desperately needed these products. Both BioNTech and Moderna in 10 years, had never brought a product to market. Multi-billion dollar companies had never brought a, co a, a product to market. Yet these are the two main uh, Pfizer that worked with BioNTech and, and Moderna that brought these to market. These are, I need to rush on, but you know, even how they distributed with lipid nanoparticles is, a, is, a, is an absolute nightmare. Um, so uh, this is probably the most chilling thing. People act like you have a choice. But for the world at large, normalcy only returns when we've largely vaccinated the entire global population. So we have a six-month study on which we were going to put this in 8 billion people multiple times. Um, there's the study. Um, the study told us, according to the science, that the Pfizer vaccine had 95% efficacy and a stunningly good safety profile. Um, when you actually look at the data, you actually need to go into the supplementary data which the MHRA got, which isn't in the paper, to actually calculate what's what, and to look at what they fed to the CDC and has been released under Freedom of Information. There's the study, um, and you can see here any serious adverse event in the vaccine group. There was 126 to 111 in the placebo group. There was 15 serious adverse events different in the study, um, uh, but nothing to see here. Uh, the CDC decided only four of them were, were, were relevant. So they, 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 they knocked it down. Uh, so we needed that additional data. And when you go around and do the maths, then you actually have to take a look at the ABPI, which is the code for the pharmaceutical industry. 
And the code for the pharmaceutical industry says you're not, you can read it yourself, times, times against us, but it says you're not allowed to unambiguously call something safe and you're not allowed to use relative risk on its own. So what did we get out of the trial? We got a relative risk on its own. And that said, it was 90, on that basis, it was 95% effective. Um, so we had this mainstream uh, narrative, 95% um, effective. Actually, the absolute risk reduction, which they should have quoted, was 0.84%. Um, but going back to 2009, even the World Health Organization said it's an ethical imperative that doctors understand the difference between relative and absolute risks to protect patients from unnecessary anxiety and manipulation. So if you do the maths on the study, um, with the additional information, because you can't get enough from the study, you have to vaccinate 7,230 people. That's the number needed to treat to, treat, to prevent one serious COVID-19 outcome. In doing so, you'll put 1.3 people in hospital. Now, that's using them that said only four people were relevant to the vaccine. What if you actually put that figure into all 15 excess deaths in the vaccine group? When you do that, to keep one patient out of hospital with COVID, you need to double vaccinate the same 7,230 people, but you would expect to see five people put in hospital as a result. That trial lasted six months. On that basis, Mr. Gates wanted to put a needle in every arm in the world. It's stunning. If there's not enough data there, why was it stopped? And guess what? Halfway through, they took the control group that allegedly got placebo, and they gave them the vaccine. So it, it, it's meaningless. A six-month paper that an amateur could look at and say, you cannot draw conclusions from this. And then this was only pointed out recently. So when you get the vaccine in one group and you give a placebo to another group. The placebo should do nothing. It should be normal saline or something that is, that is put into you. If you inject someone with normal saline, they should have no adverse effects above the normal. So you should see a flat line in the background from your placebo group. And then any adverse events you had from your treatment group should sort of reduce with time exponentially. Well, we see that both reduced in time exponentially. So why did the placebo in the first two weeks cause more side effects than the vaccine? A any, any answers? Because we're all lost. So either it wasn't a placebo, in other words, they gave them lipid nanoparticles or whatever it was, or else it was fraud. It, it, it's, it's there, uh, pure and simple. Uh, there's a breakdown which I won't, which I won't go through. Uh, Sabine Mohaltra has written to the European scientists and said, look, I've taken both jabs but I've now looked at this data and you need to be open and transparent. Um, there is the amount of reporting to the American Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System in the last two years compared with all vaccines that have been reported uh, in the past. So you can't really get much data from the yellow card system, but if you go into Open VAERS, which is the version of the American system, which remember is only supposed to be about 10% of the symptoms, there's... Um, two and a half million uh, reported vaccine side effects, and you can break the statistics on down as, as you will. Um, Peter Doshi at the, uh, the editor, associate editor of the British Medical Journal has also done a paper comparing the results for both the Pfizer and Moderna trials, and you can read that one itself. It's in the journal Vaccine. 
Um, these are just showing uh, that young males, 15 to 19, compared to young females, had a lot of adverse side effects compared to, um, uh, sorry, adverse side effects as in death compared to females as a result of this. And there we have it, uh, Pfizer and the CDC applied to a judge in the States to have all of their data sealed for 75 years. They got eight months um, and we're still trying to wade through something like 50,000 papers where it's all obfuscated, uh, comes along with it. Uh, this, this was published in the BMJ. I'm surprised the, the Peter dossier hasn't been hung, drawn, and quartered yet. But um, this was uh, the discussion of the researcher that uh, essentially uh, this, this, this woman looked at 153 trial sites for the vaccine for Pfizer uh, and saw that there was things that were wrong in all of them. Uh, but the Food and Drug Association only decided to look at nine she found untrained staff giving vaccines. Doctors were unblinded, so they knew exactly what they were giving and recording, looking for side effects. Data on patients' forms was forged, things like signatures. Investigators were requested to change the diagnosis of patients. Patients were not given proper informed consent, and patients were incentivized not to tattle to the media regarding adverse events. You know, if even, if even half of that is true, um, this six-month paper is just not worth the paper it's written on, and to be quite frank, on that basis, we wanted to vaccinate the world. Um, the German study came up with exactly the same thing, 0.3 serious adverse events uh, per 1,000 people that, that got it. And it probably says it all that the Centers for Disease Control director, who was in charge of all of this, uh, got her news of the success of the vaccine, vaccine from the media. I can tell you where I was when CNN feed came that it was 95% effective, the vaccine. So many of us wanted it to be helpful. So many of us wanted to say, okay, this is our ticket out. This is the person that's responsible for regulation, this company, and listens to a Pfizer press release that is put out through the mainstream media, and that's her source of information, using relative risk that this is 95% effective and safe. Well. There's data from the world, there's the deaths, and there's when the vaccine arrived. That's what our good friend Neil Ferguson predicted would happen. He's, they've said that millions of lives have been saved. Uh, same model. Um, uh, and this just shows different countries in the world that were highly vaccinated versus countries that were lesser vaccinated, and there's absolutely no difference meaningful in the outcomes uh, of the deaths. But what there is significant uh, information on is things like myocarditis. So there is data from America showing myocarditis uh, going off the scale. Uh, and this has been shown in a study in Thailand uh, with children. Um, and the fact checkers have done their best to, to, to suppress it. Um, but this is, this is big. We knew these children were not at risk. And to be honest, I nearly call this, this, this topic protecting granny because the ethics of protecting granny and doing this to children were, was just so wrong. Um, uh, there's, there's our friends at Imperial again telling us that they've saved millions of lives um, by, by using their models. Um, maybe the truth coming from my favorite image bearer, Bill Gates. Uh, sadly, the virus itself, particularly the variant Omicron, is a type of vaccine. That is, it creates both B and T cell immunity and it's done a better job of getting out to the world population than we have with vaccines. A moment of truth from the monopolist. I'm not going to go through the fear. You know the fear. It's all been, it's, it's all been there. 
uh, how it was manipulated, um, how the nudge unit was set up. Any Christian organization would just be sick if they read uh, if, if they read the book and then the excess mortality is very, very clear what's happened now in the last year. It's gone up and up and up. Any intenses that went down are now off the scale. Um, the the, the weights to, to, to be admitted are there. We have insurance data that shows middle-aged people just dying all, all over the place and our bed occupancy has gone up as well. These are the figures from Australia. They got their vaccine a little bit later and their deaths occurred after vaccination. Um, uh, th there's your um, cardiac arrest response calls in England, uh, which has just gone up and up and up. So I'll, I'll finish. If the government asked you to do something immoral, would you do it? Ask that to the church and ask them to revise what went on in the last two things. These are some colleagues that have worked with Americans to come up with ethical principles for public health on the basis of the pandemic itself. And with that, my voice is gone. Thank you very much.